And as I encouraged you last week, please remember, we pray here now. This section of our worship is over, but I would encourage you to continue to pray as we leave this room today for those very needs. Now, today we are studying the third section of an important mission truth that Jesus gives us in John 20, 19 through 23. And remember, uh, we're at the back end of Philippians. We've got about four weeks left here. And we are under the heading of Philippians, chasing very particular rabbits. And what I mean by that is uh, we are taking truths and ideas that the Apostle Paul gives us in very brief ways in Philippians. For example, we are sort of studying under the general theme of what it means to fix our eyes on those who follow Jesus well. That's the truth we introduced in the third chapter of Philippians. And we have spent some time addressing and looking at people in Scripture who have followed Jesus well. In other words, people we can pattern our lives after when it comes to how we love Jesus, Jesus' gospel, the truth of who he is to us, our brothers and sisters in Jesus' community, and mission, those who are far from God, which is the subject that we're on today and have been for the last couple of weeks. So the premise of what we've been studying in these verses in John uh, 20 highlights a heart attitude very common in people. And it is one that is central to us living a robust and meaningful life in Christ. That is what John 10.10 teaches us. That the life of a Christian should not be marginal or nominal. It should be one defined by abundance and fruitfulness. And remember, abundance, fruitfulness, these words that have a, a very dynamic and sensational nature to them, that does not always mean that when we are living on a mission for Jesus when we are passionately in love with him, serving our neighbors, that does not necessarily mean that the expression of that work will be sensational. It certainly can be. What is sensational about the work is the fact that we are obedient to it. And so I don't ever want you to equate kind of cause and effect, meaning like to to have these kind of grandiose promises the scripture gives us. In this case, Jesus gives us his peace and his Holy Spirit. He says, go change the world. It's a pretty, pretty radical concept. Changing the world can happen in radical ways, but oftentimes what I find in the kingdom is it happens in subtle, we would even say subversive ways. And if you need proof of that, look at the gospel and look at Jesus Christ. He was not a celebrity. Even to this day, he's not a celebrity or a superstar in the world. He's respected by people. He was frowned upon by most of the first century world. But what he did in a very subversive way, in a very subtle way, had incredible eternal significance in the world. So my call to you in these past weeks and in the weeks that follow is to obedience. It's not necessarily towards sensational expression. Should God bless you in that area? Wonderful. But obedience and fidelity is really the call of, of, of being dispensers of God's peace. And the call we have been looking at here particularly is that when we deeply care about something or someone, we are often compelled to live in sacrifice for that something or that someone. We are more likely to take great risk for it. Look at the relationships in your life, the people you care about, your wife, your husband, your children, your best friends. These are relationships that matter to us, at least they should. And when they do, we are often compelled to do great and above average things for those people. And we often expect that for us. It's in these verses, John 20, that Jesus establishes and commands us to carry on his redemptive mission in the world in the very same way God sent him into the world. So when we speak of looking to those who follow God well, who we're looking at in these passages, it's a person of Jesus. In this teaching, Jesus is trying to show us that just like him, when a person truly loves and experiences the love of God, the natural result should be a Christ-centered compulsion to live sacrificially for God. It should be an innate desire to serve God and to do the things that God asks of us. It just happens. And what we're speaking of here is sharing the love of Jesus with other people. And so in light of that, in our Philippians series, now in its final turn, we continue to examine in detail a very key statement. I want to refresh your minds this morning with it. The gospel promises of God's love 
which are just the, the, the book of Philippians is packed with them. All of these promises we have talked about, we have got to be a people who learn to apply them to our hearts. But we have to remember they are not just for us. John 20 shows us what we're going to look at today in Ephesians. What we're going to read about in 2 Corinthians shows us that the, the way we truly press into our relationship with Jesus is not by just hoarding up great promises. It's by recognizing that we have been set apart by God to be dispensers of those promises too. We are meant to be God's conduit. He, he helps us to experience these beautiful blessings, but also helps us and compels us to help others experience them in the same way. It has been my desire that as we study the redemptive mission of God, that God will compel your hearts to be on it for the first time or to be on it in more deep, deep and significant ways. To see your life as a platform for the mission in your workplace, in your families, in your schools, wherever you go, you have been purposely put there for a reason. That's the nature of this teaching. And so today we add a layer to this truth by talking again about some practical instruction. And to do so, I want to do this in two ways. The first way is by revisiting a teaching I shared with you two years ago from Ephesians. I want to get into the theology of what it means to, to follow God well this morning. To be the type of person whom God can look at and say, I'm pleased with this. We're going to look at some verses in Ephesians, and then we're going to jump back into John at the end of my message. And in these verses in Ephesians, Paul does something interesting. And he does this a lot, but there are just certain places in Scripture where he has this ability to marry profound theology with deep spirituality, and he does it almost in a poetic way. He's a good writer, is what I'm saying. And he's writing about a very good subject. He makes a strong connection between the mission that Jesus gave us in John 20. Right? We're going to look at what Jesus said, and then we're going to look at somebody who's applied this to his life and challenges us to do the same. He makes a strong connection between the aroma of our lives and the mission of Jesus Christ that he lays out for us in John 20. And so before we jump into the first idea I want to share with you, it does us well to ask a pretty significant question, a framing question. Why does Paul say when we live our lives as a sweet aroma before God that it is one of the greatest ways we can accomplish the mission Jesus gave us in John 20? Well, this leads me to the first truth that I want to share with you this morning. When your life is a sweet aroma to God, when your life is a pleasant fragrance to God, it is at this point that God can and will use you to do great things for his mission. There's, I'm not saying God cannot use us, ever. I am saying that when our lives sort of manifest themselves in the way we're going to talk about now and what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, God sees us as a platform for the goodness of his gospel. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. We just read this, but I want to reread it. Follow God's example. Again, this idea of example. It's replete in Paul's writing. He's always telling us to look to somebody to follow Jesus. Follow God's example here, directly now, to God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Keep in mind here, we won't address this, because I've addressed this early in Philippians, but before Paul even tells us to do anything, and in this case it's essentially to live our lives in such a way that they are fragrant offerings to God, he automatically precedes a command to do something by reminding us of an identity. What he says here is, listen, he doesn't say, uh, go and be a fragrant offering to God. Not even Jesus did this. Jesus didn't say, uh, you know, my mission I'm giving to you, go into the world. Before Jesus gives us the mission in John 20, he says, my peace and my spirit I give you. He gives us an identity first. He says, you're mine, and I'm going to send you into the world. Here in Ephesians, Paul does the same thing. He says, listen, before you go into the world, before you recognize you'll see your life as a, a fragrant offering, Recognize you can see your life as a fragrant offering because you are a dearly beloved child of God. 
tons of teaching in the book of Philippians on this. And I would encourage you, if you missed that or just want to dwell a little more deeply on that, to, to look into that. Your ability to be a fragrant aroma to God is rooted in your understanding of what it means to be a beloved child of God. And in Scripture, it's very clear that God loves it when our lives become a sweet aroma to Him. This is an expectation He has of us. And there's literally a theology of how we smell to God in the Bible. And it is found in the symbolism of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, or you're really into like Leviticus, and you read about all these things, you're going to know what I'm saying here. But what I want to do is take a moment just to bridge this gap. Because most of us don't function under an Old Testament sacrificial system. For good reason. If we were to like burn offerings in here, we would set the building on fire and lose the contract in a week. It's a guarantee. There's some practical reasons why it's good that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for us. But these ideas, right, this, this idea is actually completely fulfilled in Jesus. And so it's in the Old Testament that God's people, Israel, remember two weeks ago we talked about mission beginning in the very first pages of Genesis? Here's another great example of it. The forgiveness of sin, God's desire to call a broken people back into to his world and to his life, doesn't just happen in John 20. It climaxes in John 20. That covenant is fulfilled there. So in the Old Testament, there's sacrificial systems. And there's a very big one, a burnt offering that is designed to help people receive forgiveness of sin. A burnt offering is what we're going to talk about here because it's what Paul talks about. And the symbolism of the burnt offering in the Old Testament is that when the sacrifice was made to God with a genuine heart, keep in mind, it's not the sacrifice itself. It's how we approach the sacrifice. It's not Jesus himself. Jesus redeems the world, at least offers redemption. But our ability to be with God forever in eternity, that, there's a decision we have to make. How we approach the sacrifice and receive the sacrifice, our faith in the sacrifice, you might even say, is what determines whether or not we will truly be a pleasant aroma to God. And the same is true in the Old Testament. God didn't care as much about burning stuff in the Old Testament as he did his people recognizing the nature of what the burning meant. And the nature of the burning meant that with a proper heart and genuine repentance, when people offered their sacrifices to God, that burnt offering was a pleasant aroma to God. What was pleasant about the aroma was the posture of the hearts of the people who, are, who saw God for who he was and followed him as he expected. To put it another way, the sacrificial love displayed through the offering deeply pleased God. In the New Testament, Paul uses the same language here to describe how God loves when you and I get on mission and sacrificially love others in the name of Jesus. This is one of the ways that we smell pleasant to God. He, carries, or he says it carries the same pleasant aroma to him. And for example, I want to read to you a verse from 2 Corinthians 2, 14-15. Maybe you, maybe you need a deeper connection here to see where I'm going here. This is sort of like a concrete example of this. Paul inexplic inexplicably, excuse me, Paul without question bridges these ideas. But thanks be to God, he says, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge of him being of him everywhere. Let me stop right there. So we get this idea of being thankful to God. We have this idea of being led out of oppression being led in a triumphant procession, right? And what Paul says here is part of the way we march triumphantly before the Lord is spreading the aroma of the knowledge of God. And knowledge can have a negative connotation, but it doesn't have a negative connotation in Scripture. Knowledge, your ability to spread a pleasant aroma, is intimately connected to your ability to understand and know who God is. And he goes on to say here, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So what you've got here is a direct connection that what makes us a pleasing aroma to God, one of the things anyways, is our personal knowledge of God, 
our personal desire to intimately know him, head, heart, and hands, and to be a dispenser of that knowledge to other people. God sees that and smells that, and he smiles on that. So if you're a student of the Bible, you know Paul isn't saying in these verses that we need to continue to give burnt offerings to God to please him. That's not where he's going with this. Because when Jesus is put on the cross for us, he satisfies God's desires once and for all. He atones for our sin, a subject we'll get to here in a moment. What he is saying, though, is that in both Ephesians and 2 Corinthians, the way we flesh out the mission, the way we understand the significance of Jesus' words in John 20, is that Jesus giving himself up for us because he loves us is now the most visible example of what God sees and understands sacrifice and obedience to be in our lives. Our understanding of God shapes how we live for God. It should compel us to live for God. It's why Jesus says to his disciples in John 20 what he says. His commission means a great deal to God. And they give Paul the authority, that commission does, gives Paul the authority to write the words that he gives to us. How? That's where I want to go next. How does the sacrifice of Jesus, the command of Jesus, the actions of Paul, and frankly the actions of other great men and women in the scripture who follow Jesus well, how does the knowledge of God connect to the life we live for him? Well, in both places, God wants us to explicitly see that Jesus going to the cross, it's a fragrant offering. It's a sweet smell to him. In other words, we have to know a little bit about sacrifice. And this begs an interesting question. And it has a major life application. How can God describe the death of his son? Think about this. There are many people in our world who say, you know, God is a megalomaniac. He just, you know, he dispenses judgment here and shows a lack of care here and He's apathetic here and he shows favor there. How is it that we can say nailing Jesus to the cross is a sweet aroma to God? It's a character question we have to answer here. How is the death of his son a fragrant aroma to him? Well, this teaching gives us an answer to that question. We can be confident that God wasn't sadistically happy about seeing his son suffer on the cross. Rather, he takes great joy in two amazing heart attitudes Jesus displays as he is sent to the cross. Jesus is God's beloved child. God loves him as his son. And inherent in Jesus' sacrifice are two great characteristics of his mission that stem from God, prove he loves us, and serve as the motivation for why we need to love others in the very same way. Simply put, where I want to go right now is that there are two foundational mission attitudes that have to be present in your life if you want your life to be a sweet aroma to God. Before I tell you what they are, I want to give us a kind of a caveat, a warning. For the majority of our teaching time in Philippians, and even in John 20, the first couple of weeks, we really rooted into a promise Jesus gives us. For the majority of our teaching time in Philippians, we've talked about these characteristics from the angle of, of what God does for us. And that's important to know. I'm not undermining that. However, what we have studied about mission over these past weeks is really a direct evidence of how deeply you believe what you studied. Because we're now talking about patterning our lives after that stuff. So what happens here in a teaching like this, and this is true with most scriptural teachings, is our knowledge of God has to shape an action for God at some point. At some point we have got to get to the place where we, if we affirm the grandeur and the greatness of the cross, but it doesn't compel us to, to pattern, to follow God's example in that same way, then it creates a bit of a disconnect. There might be a problem with what we say we know, and what the aroma of our life actually looks like. What happens here is God says, I would like you to deeply dwell upon what I've done for you and now live in the same way for other people. 
And in John, Ephesians, and 2 Corinthians, God is literally saying the aroma of our lives, what pleases him deeply, is when you and I live a life defined by sacrifice and, and servitude, joyful servitude for others. It's when we see people the way God sees them, when we love them the way God loves them and care for them the way God cares for them, when we are gracious to them in their times of need, when we labor for them in their times of struggle. These are all the things we tout and celebrate as God's people, and we should. We just want to make sure that our external actions line up with the way we receive this internal care from God. And so to get a handle on this, let's briefly look at the two hard attitudes Jesus displays on the cross. Sacrifice and servitude, joyful servitude. And see how he now calls us to embody the same lifestyle for others. First, Jesus lived his life as a complete sacrifice for God and others throughout his life and his death. From, from the very moment he steps on the earth to the point he ascends off of it. And even in this very moment, Jesus is living for the benefit of other people. He's living for the glory of God, don't get me wrong. But he is living for the benefit of other people too. He's left his Holy Spirit here for us to be able to know and grow in our love of him. And so the sacrificial language used here is the most clear and powerful motivation for why we as Christians are being given this mission command in John 20. In Ephesians 5.2, Paul is talking about Jesus' atonement for us. He's saying what Jesus has done for you is a pretty important thing. And in case you don't know, atonement simply means, this is what Jesus does on the cross for us, it means the act of bringing two estranged parties back together. And in the Bible, the two parties we're talking about are a holy God and a fallen people. A fallen people broken and dead because of sin. And it's extremely important to make this connection. We just sang about like this joyful bliss of knowing Jesus. And I hear those verses a lot. I know that song well, and it's one of my favorites here. But sometimes I wonder, I don't wonder, I'm convinced of this. But I wonder, like, these, even these ideas we talk about, Jesus redeeming us for our sin. I think the level of what God had to do for us, the reason we sing songs like that is because we can in very meaningful ways understand and experience that reality. But when we really think about the lengths God has gone to us, for us on the cross, there is somewhat of a joyful bliss that we experience because of it under earth. I think even, even our full knowledge of it under earth is never going to be fully revealed until we get to be with him in heaven. The weight and the reality of what Jesus did for us, we can live in that truth now in powerful ways that reshape our lives. But there's still a bliss connected to it. I don't know that we will ever fully know the pain that God's son endured for us to redeem us of sin. But I do know that we can fully experience the grace he's provided us. I will say that, that the way you value that grace and the way you really love Jesus well and pursue him more deeply is by trying to wrap your mind and your heart about, around the cost of what Jesus did for us, the cost of his sacrifice. He lives, Philippians tells us, he leaves the privilege of heaven to become a man, to suffer like us and to serve us. He lives for the well-being of others. And he ultimately dies to redeem us. His entire mission is meant to end in his sacrifice on the cross. That's where it goes. So that he could atone for the sins of the world, to bring us back together to God. And he brings a final restoration between God and us. No pun intended. I explain why we named our church what we named it last week. Jesus' whole life was lived in the service of others because he understood the dire condition of every person on earth. He understood what it meant to be separated from God. It's a condition that's extremely serious and it causes him to live. It compels him to, to be obedient to his father and to serve us. He dies and suffers in our place for our benefit. It's a love mission so important to him that he now challenges us, calls us to carry it out, to carry it on in the power of his spirit until he returns. That's John 20. And so why does Jesus live this life of sacrifice for us? Because he's, he's proving our point here. 
He deeply understands the needs of humanity. He gets it. He knows we need a savior. And he is willing to live in sacrificial ways on our behalf because of his great love for us. And there is a very deep mission reality that we have to point out here. There is a truth in looking at who Jesus is and what he does that we have to grasp if we want to be able to live and love like Jesus did and does. If we want to get to the place where we accept this invitation of mission that Jesus offers us. We might even say it's a command. I think that's probably a better way to describe it. But we're invited into the command. Obviously, as you know, we have a, a voluntary ability to pursue him. And we'll get to that here in a moment. It is both command. It's command, really, that requires us to make a choice. So this deep mission reality, we have to point out this truth. If we want to get to the place where we accept this invitation. And here it is. The degree to which you understand the need for Jesus' love and sacrifice in your own life is going to be directly reflected in the sense of urgency you have in sharing his love and sacrificing for others. In other words, there is a direct connection between how deeply you and I see the need for Jesus' love and grace in our own life and the level of love and sacrifice we will show for others because of it. I think it's a pretty fair statement to say that when we lack the ability to be gracious, it's because we don't really understand grace. When we lack the ability to live sacrificially, I'm speaking in the Christian world now, there might be a really strong chance that we lack a genuine knowledge, understanding of what it meant to have a whole faith built upon a man who sacrificed his life for us. The level in which we taste of that honey is going to dictate how, how much we can dispense it to others. For example, I use this type of analogy a lot, but I'll give it to you in medical terms today. You would expect, depending on the nature of a medical condition, maybe a different level of personal sacrifice and urgency. Let's just talk about a surgeon for a moment who is called to perform a surgery on a boy at 2 a.m. in the morning because he comes into the hospital with a cut in his leg and needs 10 stitches, right? In our heads, we would think, man, that's serious. But, but you know, that's the kind of thing like, listen, when I was in my teens, I didn't even get taken to the hospital. I have uh, stitches on my arms. My dad used duct tape. I'm not joking. And he did what he called butterfly stitches. I got my hand cut on a cut door. And, uh, my hand was cut deeply on a cut door, uh, car door in Brooklyn. And my dad looked at it and he's like, oh, bring it here. I'll butterfly stitch it. And I was like, what does that mean? And he took out a roll of duct tape and did what he called butterfly stitches on my hand. And I had duct tape there. There was a time in history when you didn't even go to the hospital for that, right? Let me also tell you something. If he was here, I tell you, you don't ever want to use my father as an example for anything. But that's just the way he rolled. There was a day in history like that. And so 10 stitches, serious, right? Serious issue. But it's the kind of thing that is not maybe necessarily life-threatening, right? However, if I were to say to you, uh, there's a surgeon I know. And at 2 a.m. in the morning, he got a call or she got a call because a 15-year-old a kid had three gunshot wounds we would say, man, that there should be like an immediate recognition of that urgency, right? That's the kind of thing you're up and you're, you're, everything's getting thrown by the wayside to be able to take care of that. The first situation, important, serious, but would likely have a, a skilled trauma surgeon asking what, you know, why the level of sacrifice for what seems to be somewhat of a trivial matter in the medical world to a surgeon anyways. While the second would have the surgeon immediately dropping everything he or she was doing to get to the hospital and, and address that. There's a parallel here about knowledge and surgery and knowledge and understanding and knowledge and urgency. The parallel here is throughout history, you will always see the greatest servants of God always have a healthy sense of urgency when it comes to doing the work of God. Not urgency in a pressured way, a stressful way, but an urgency recognizing like, man, what Jesus says, if he really says eternal life is, is important to us because there's a consequence called hell of being separated from him forever, that's a big deal. 
And when we see people that are without God, we should want to, in gracious and compassionate ways, serve them in, in the name of Jesus. They knew what they were doing mattered. Their words and their deeds were dispensing peace, shalom, peace to the world. They were bringing love, life, and hope to a people in this life and the next. And there was a purpose behind that, a deep belief that their main purpose in life was to love God and spread his redemptive peace above all else. That doesn't mean at the expense of your jobs and your careers. I'm just saying you see what you do, everything you do, as a platform to be the hands and the feet and the verbal declaration of the peace of Jesus Christ. I'm not encouraging you to eject out of your world. I'm encouraging you to inject yourself into your world and be a platform for Christ where he provides opportunity. Living like this is the foundation for, for, the, for, the, for what Jesus does. And it also lays a bit of a foundation for the second heart attitude Jesus displays on the cross. The key thing we see on the cross is it's the culmination of a person who lives his life for the sacri sacrificially for others. The second thing we, we bring up here, and this is important to bring up, this is maybe even where the rubber meets the road for us. Because you can leave this place as well as I can today. We can leave this place saying, good talk about sacrifice, but I don't really want to do that. This is where, this is where the rubber meets the road, looking at Jesus' life. Every great sacrifice Jesus made for us during his life and in his death was done with a totally voluntary spirit. He doesn't have to do this. You know that. There's a place in the New Testament where we read like, you know, he could have he opened heaven and smote the earth and went a different road than the cross. In John 10, 18, Jesus explicitly tells us this as he's kind of cryptically giving us these foreshadowed understandings of the cross. He tells a group of people listening to him, no one takes my life from me. This is an interesting statement before he goes to the cross. Nobody takes my life from me, he says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And obviously he's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection there. And he says, this command I received from my father. So not only does he say, I have the authority to say that what I'm going to do, you don't even know what I'm going to do yet. That's what he's saying in John 10. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to do because I want to do it for you. And this is a command from my father in heaven. The authority from heaven for God to do what he did through Jesus is completely because they made a decision to do this for us. Before the foundations of time, before there was even sin, before there was even us, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit knew what they were going to do. And it was going to be to lay their lives down for us. And in this verse, and with increasing intensity, as he draws closer to the cross, Jesus, Jesus makes it very clear to us. His death for us is only going to happen because he's going to make it happen. He tells us that as God himself, he willingly makes the choice to go to the cross. He chooses to do this for us. There is a voluntary decision he makes to go to the cross. He was not, you know, guilted or shamed into the cross. There was no obligation. He does it because of the love he has for his Father in heaven and the love he has for us. Now think about this. He could have left. He could have called it a day and took the easy road. They didn't even, he didn't even have to leave heaven. We didn't even have to have a book of Philippians. We don't have to have a Christmas incarnation. We don't have to have any of that, that stuff. We could have not had any of that stuff had Jesus had a different attitude. But he doesn't have a different attitude. He takes the high road of voluntary, heart-deep sacrifice. It's a compulsion Paul writes about. His love for God compels him to do sacrificial things for people. He pursues us when we choose to reject him. I'm glad one of you agreed with that. <laughs> now here's why knowing this matters. This truth matters. Here's why knowing a gospel truth shapes how you understand your brother and sister in Jesus and your neighbor that might be without Jesus. Jesus' actions show us that there is nothing we can ever do that will cause him to stop loving us. 
There might be times when he's not pleased with us. Very different statement. But he can never stop loving us, if, especially if we're in him. And the cross shows us this. His death on the cross shows us he has already chosen to take the worst we can do to him. If ever there was a time that Jesus would say, I don't love you, it would have been before he redeemed the world of sin. It would have been a good time to make that decision. But he didn't. He uses it as an opportunity to prove his love to us. And I believe deeply that the, the proving ground, part of the reason of why Jesus does what he does, is because he wants there to be a love that is, that is magnetic, a love that actually calls us to the cross, a recognition of what he's done for us, and then a desire to love Jesus well. The cross shows us Jesus' willingness to sacrifice himself for others. It is considered a sweet aroma to God, the highest aroma to God. And the connection we need to point out here is that when we live sacrificially for others like Jesus did for us, it brings the same type of joy and satisfaction to God. And that really is a mind blower to me. It is a very simple statement. Live like Jesus and God is pleased in you. Simple statement. But the implications of that are just mammoth. And I think dwelling on that really, dwell on that for a couple of weeks and see what God does with your life. Let me issue you that challenge. Together, let's do that this week. It's a mind blower. In the same way as a parent, or you have a good friend, maybe that, you know, a, a parent watching their kid hit a baseball for the first time. I can still remember this, this in my front yard when my son Aiden doesn't play baseball anymore. When he hit a ball, it was pretty, I was a pretty proud moment to me, for me. It was, I was just joyous in that. Or when you see a friend you know graduate from college or get the job they wanted, these are the types of joys that God has when he looks at us as his children. He's pleased with us. And so before we move on, I ask you again, when it comes to being on Jesus's mission and loving others sacrificially, is your life a sweet aroma to God like Christ is? If not, you just have to know the, the lack of desire to do that or to even wrestle with this, the absence of this in your life, means you're missing out on experiencing God in a way and showing the grace of God to others in a way. I don't know that you can fully know God disconnected from his mission. You can know God, but I don't think you're going to know God the way we're speaking of here. This connection between your life being a, a powerful and pleasant aroma to him. Because that is a direct connection in, in, let me put it this way, in how we understand Jesus to be a pleasant aroma to us. We can look at Jesus and smell him and inhale him and say, man, holy moly, this is pretty amazing. You're going to miss out on some of that if you miss, on, miss out on this second point. You, they're, they're deeply connected. And so here's where we're going to end this morning. I want to take a couple of minutes, just going to shamelessly say this, to say to you right now what I said to you last week. Maybe you're a stickler here and you're saying, well, you already said what you said last week. This, you're going to say this again, so why did I even show up here today? And what I want to, I want to give you the reasoning for this. I want, to, I want to share with you from John 20, 23, the steps to being on mission. I don't want to leave here just ta talking about the significance of Christ's sacrifice for us. I want to leave here with you having tangible action steps to apply it. And the reason I say this is because some of you were not here last week, and I want you to hear this. And there are some of you who were here last week, me included. And the question we ask ourselves is, have we done any of this this past week? This is going to be a good indication of uh, a diagnostic for where we are or are not with Jesus' mission, and a diagnostic for those of us who heard this to say, I actually didn't or did do some of this. There's no judgment here. It's just a challenge to say, where are we with this and are we acting on it? And so with this in mind, in John 20, 23, Jesus tells us a very powerful statement. He says, if you forgive the sins of anyone, after he gives his people, the disciples, his peace and his Holy Spirit, he says, if you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. But if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And for time's sake, because there's a whole talk on this, I won't believe this, but I am going to mention this statement because it's important. Last week, I pointed out that this verse isn't saying that Jesus gives us the ability to forgive sin the way he does. Only Jesus can do that. 
There's only one person who can atone for the sins of the world like Jesus did, and that is Jesus. We cannot forgive people of their sins the way Jesus did. However, he gives us an authority to do something pretty powerful here. He gives his people a commission by God to declare his peace and forgiveness to the world. And what he's saying here is you have the, the permission and the, the, the command. I'm saying I want you to do this to tell people in our own words and ways and actions. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior and follow him as your Lord, you're forgiven of sins. Jesus gives us this authority to declare a forgiveness that he has already granted to us and the world through the cross. And so the point of this is not to split hairs on how forgiveness is dispensed through the world. The point is to say that Jesus is explicitly telling us that as God's people, if we truly understand the cross, we should be compelled to proclaim the message of forgiveness to others. And since this truth is where Jesus left the disciples in John 20, it is where I leave you this morning. It will help you to get on mission or to remain on mission. Four quick steps. Step one, if you are not on mission or want to figure out what your mission is, commit to pray for God to make and keep your heart sensitive to his redemptive mission. For those of us here last week, I want to know if you prayed this. I don't need you to tell me that. I just want you to talk to the Lord about that. No great work in God's economy ever happens without us praying about things. So when we speak of the mission of God and clarity and understanding what it means in our lives, there's a trillion things we as a church and individuals can be doing. But what I'm concerned with is the things, the particular things God wants us corporately and individually as a church to be doing here. And so when we speak about mission, we have got to pray for God to raise up laborers. We have to pray for a burden to be on mission. We have to pray for God to raise up laborers. And I say it again, you cannot exclude your name from that list. There's no he's, she's, it's, or they's when it comes to this prayer. There's we's, me's, I's, and us's. We cannot exclude ourselves from this paradigm. Remember, we cannot ever fully value the things of God without God. And so when we speak about this value, living sacrificially for the sake of others, not an incredibly common value, not the thing we wake up always wanting to do, but it is the type of thing God wants to create a, a consistency in our life in. So we pray regularly for God to create a burden in our hearts and to raise up laborers. And then we expect God to work. And I mean that word, expect. We expect God to work because he's promised us he wants to. Pray. Secondly, you have to bless people. You have got to take advantage of the opportunities when they present themselves. I'll reread to you Matthew 5.16. Again, Jesus speaking about the kingdom and mission and the way we live our, our lives out in this world. He says in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before everyone that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, if you are on mission right now, if you are laboring for the, for the kingdom of God, you know that we live in a world today that's highly skeptical of a lot of things. And, and religion, which is what Christianity is classified as, that's not necessarily a bad word, can be, I guess, depending on the context. I would argue that Christianity is much more than a religion, although it certainly is defined as one. Point here is that there are lots of people skeptical of what we believe. For good, I affirm this regularly, there are legitimate questions people have we need to be equipped to answer. And then there are just sometimes ridiculous reasons why people don't, they deny or disavow or, or don't want anything to do with Christianity. We want to sort through those two things. We want to help people to have clarity even in their minds when they might be confused. But the point is, no matter where we're coming from, legitimate objection or confusion, it's important for us to know that according to Jesus here, our words and our deeds, they have to be in sync with each other. So if we say, I believe in peace and Jesus' grace, 
but we cannot show that to people. There's a Matthew 5.16 light shining issue. No matter what the connection there is, I don't know, there's a million things, and I trust that the Lord is clear with you on the places where he wants to build bigger or greater consistencies in your life. And keep in mind, we're all in that boat. Part of growing in Jesus means we always have places to build this bridge. The point I'm making here is that if you want to be a person who is on God's mission, you actually have to, you have to, you have to act at some point. And the great example I gave last week, we'll go right back to the cross since we've been talking about it, is Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying about what is about to happen. He knows what's about to happen. He's praying for this. But on Golgotha, he goes to the cross. He didn't pray for redemption. He didn't pray for him to understand explicitly God's plans for him. He prays. I mean, he directly prays for the cup to pass. He says, if there's another way, let's do that. But there isn't another way. And at that point, he's resolute. He fixes his eyes on the cross, and he moves to the cross. His prayer breeds action. Pray and act. Thirdly, make it a priority to dwell among people that don't believe in Jesus. This is an obvious one, but it's an obviously hard one. For some of us at times, this is very difficult to grasp because the more we follow Jesus at times, it can be very easy for us to only want to be around other Christian people. This sort of makes sense. Sometimes life can be easier when we're around people that think and believe like us. And that actually is not always a guarantee, even in a body of people who call themselves Christians. But if there's a general agreement in main areas of life, faith and family and that stuff, it's oftentimes easier to surround ourselves with people who are sort of homogenous. And I'm not knocking our desire to be around other Christians. It's one of the stated values of what a community group does here. They socialize with each other. They are in community with each other. We want that to happen. We need that to happen. But it can't happen at the expense of mission. And what I simply mean by that is we can never love our brothers and sisters in Jesus so deeply that we sort of get apathetic or numb to the people in our world who are without that love. This is a perfect example of the Trinity of God. The love they have for each other is pretty deep. But Jesus leaves heaven so we can be a part of that. That's the same thing that happens with us. Broken and imperfect ways, we're meant to be that love. There are a lot of unbelieving people in our world today. And what I love about this, I don't say that in a negative way, I mean that in a positive way, is that when Jesus came to earth, the same reality was there. And we see Jesus spends a great amount of time with people who are far from God. So if you're going to be sent like Jesus, it means you have to be sent like Jesus. You have to labor in the circles where there are people who, who are far from God. You have to be okay with that. Because God was okay with that. And you have to watch God work. Last thing I'll say here. Uh, and this is clearly uh, the most important step of all. If you're praying, if you're looking at opportunities when they arise, you're identifying them and you're acting upon them. You just have to know that at some point, uh, at some point, we, we have a decision to make right now. We're going to leave this room with a, with a decision about our voluntary willingness to do this. We've heard the, the truth. The reality now is, do we actually, like Jesus says in John 10, I don't have to do any of this, but I'm going to do this because I love my Father in heaven and my neighbor. I know this is abrasive, but I don't mean it to be. Please do not let what we have talked about here today become another set of notes. Don't let it be another note on your iPhone or in the margins of your Bible. Let it be a note that you refer back to to create a deeper level of obedience in your life in this area and watch God work. Essentially, just be on mission. And I'm not even saying you need to be able to speak Swahili and go to East Africa tomorrow. I'm saying you can be kind to somebody when you leave this room in the name of Jesus. And I'm also saying... Whenever we speak of mission, if you have questions about mission, if you're, there are areas you feel like you want to be equipped in, let us know in those cards, and we'll help you to figure that out. At least we'll try. 
At times like the disciples, here's my parting shot. Because of fear, we just assume people will, will say no. We assume that God isn't working in our lives. Maybe we go the other road. We have the posture of penalty. Like we look at unbelief or folks in our, who love Jesus who are struggling and they don't have it all together, which is also us on many days. And we look at that and we don't say, man, I need to labor. I need to labor to help this person know, become a sweet aroma. We look at that and we say, man, I'm just going to be critical or I'm going to be negative, or I'm going to critique that. Listen to me. This is where our understanding of where we are and are not with Jesus matters. What I would encourage you to do is to look at how Jesus treated the disciples. They just heard that he came back to life. He rolled the stone away and came back to life. And the first thing they did was they hid in an upper room, right? They ran away because people were trying to take their lives. They were absolutely the furthest away from the mission of God that they could have been when Jesus just proved to the world that everything he said was true. And Jesus came in, and he did not get on a hobby horse. He said, be peace. My Holy Spirit, I give you. I'm here. I'm back. I'm with you. Now let's get back on track. That's where we need to be when it comes with mission. When it comes to where we are or are not with Jesus. Peace be with you. My spirit is with you. Now get back on the horse and get into the mission. So as we enter our response time, and as we see fruit from the mission today, both through partnership and baptism, it's a beautiful thing to see that we have an expression of this here today. And I want to thank you all for your fidelity to the mission. I want to challenge you all to stay on it with me. Thank God in our time of response for what he's done for you. But don't let that be the kind of thing. Don't let your thanksgiving stop you from being compelled to serve God in meaningful ways. As we close, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about his grace, his son, and his mission? And what are you going to do about it when you leave this place? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your son. Thank you for the command to look to others that follow you and the slew of people in scripture who have done this well in human ways. Those same people, you know, we can look at a guy like Paul and we can see the, the days where he really, he really nailed this. But we can also look at the life of Paul and see the days where he did not nail this at all. And so I am always thankful, especially when we deal with these themes of deep humanity, commitment and fidelity, sacrifice. These are meaningful words in our lives that often have messy applications. It is my genuine prayer that we would recognize these, these talks, these messages about mission are not, they're not striving. I'm not striving to create a, an ideal for perfection that doesn't exist. I am, though, trying to, to look at faithful men and women who had mountaintop and valley experiences and to apply this to our life, to get to the place where we can, with peace and purpose, follow you no matter where our life is. So I pray that as we move into this, we would not be judged by the shame of ideal. Don't let our hearts do that to ourselves, but let the peace and the goodness of your son propel us into a deeper level of love for you. May your son grab our hands and guide us through these times of response that we have for these next moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.